pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, normally, you come up with some great illustration to capture the crowd. I'm just going to save that for the conclusion. So turn with me to Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 32. We have taken our time in this second section of the book of Acts. Uh, We looked at four or five sermons in chapter 8, and this will be our fourth in chapter 9. It starts in verse 32, and it starts with a word, now. This now serves as a transition. Uh, we're We're leaving where we left off, where we saw Saul converted, Saul praying, Saul baptized. And now we go back to Peter. And what we'll see is that this Jewish religion, this Jewish Messiah is meant to go to the world. It is now a Christian religion. It is religions of Jews and Gentiles. And so you're going to take the head apostle, the leader of the 12, and we're going to get the next three chapters in these two paragraphs with him. We're going to see conversions. We're going to see an escape. And today we're going to see two miracles. The first is with Aeneas. As you can see here in verse 32 and 33, and as Peter went around there among them all, well, you'll notice that Peter is still, according to 825, now they had testified and spoken to the word of the Lord, and they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Peter is still around with the people. He is not an ivory tower apostle who stayed in Jerusalem and sent his uh, servants to do his work. He is a fisherman. He's a man of the people and he wanted to be out on the streets. He is interested in the progress of the gospel in the lives of people. It was said of Abraham Lincoln that his, one of his most notable characteristics is that he was among his men. He didn't lead from uh, the castle, so to speak. He was out on the front lines and that is where you see Peter. Peter is there among them all. Some translation says he went to visit the saints. He came down to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. We're not told how he found him. We don't know. Perhaps he's visiting someone and they said, hey, I know of this guy Aeneas. He's been confined to his bed for eight years because he's paralyzed. Peter, do you think you can do something? So Peter finds his way to Aeneas. Aeneas, the only description we get of him is his position and his power. His position, he has been bedridden for eight years. By God's grace and for his glory, I begin my seventh year of preaching today. It was March 1st, 2009. It's March 1st today that we carry on into the seventh year. And a lot has happened in six years. Some of you have been uh, here through it all. The good, the bad. There's a lot that's gone on. That's in six years. Imagine a man who is in bed for eight years. What's gone through his mind? What is he thinking right now? That is his position. He is lying. He is helpless. And his power, he has, he, he's paralyzed. He is immovable. He cannot do what he might want to do. And we assume he would want to be out of his bed. And so his position is lying, his power is he's helpless and he's hopeless. And Peter comes to him and Peter is going to speak life into this dead situation. 
And Peter said to him, verse 34, Aeneas, he calls him by his name. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. He's not only personal, but he's Christological. He focuses on Jesus Christ. And then he says, rise and make your bed. And immediately he, Aeneas, rose. And we can assume that he arose and he made his bed. Interesting that Luke would include rise and make your bed. Literally, that's tidy up your place. Children. Let's not make it a miracle for us to have you make your beds. Amen, parents? Literally, he says, rise, and he says, tidy up your place. Make your bed. And I want to see hospital corners. We were working on this last night, and I said, honey, I showed her the sheet was hanging out low. We got to tuck that baby under. If Better Homes and Gardens were to show up, we want that room looking like in Getty. But the purpose behind that, right, is he says, Aeneas, he is personal. Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Not only can you help yourself, but you can now serve others. He was raised out of his bed with a responsibility. Raised with a responsibility. More on that in just a minute. And here's the result in verse 35. And all the residents of Lida and Sharon saw him. They saw Aeneas. They heard about Aeneas for eight years. They'd seen him there. Maybe they had brought him some soup and now they see him and they, because of what happened to Aeneas, turned to the Lord. Just a little background. Sharon is the coastal plain. If you were going to go from Lida to Joppa, Sharon is the coastal plain. We'll see a map here in a minute, but notice here, they turned to the Lord. There is a great verse in the book of first Thessalonians in the first chapter in verse nine that uses that exact same word. Paul says it like this, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you watched this turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. When you turn from something, you must turn towards something. When we call people out of the darkness, we're calling them to the light. They must turn away from the darkness and turn to the light. And that is what these residents of Lida and Sharon had done. They had turned to the Lord. They had turned from their idols and now they were serving a living God. That's what's going on in Lida. And if you've ever watched the old, now I'm, I'm dating myself and some of you will appreciate this, the old Batman shows. This is long before they got grotesque. This is back when you had the guy in the gray suit and when they were fighting, they, they would show the fist and the big blam. Do you remember those? Always when they were transitioning, it was meanwhile back at the bat cave. And so we see another transition here in 36. Now there was in Joppa, a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means 
Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. And so while this is going on in Lydda, there is this disciple. We're given more information about Tabitha. She's a disciple. She's got several names, all of which mean gazelle or deer or full of life. It's used. It's the same Hebrew word that's used of the beloved in the song of Solomon. And Luke says she was full of good works. That is the life was evident in her. The the Christian faith was evident in her work. It was a life characterized by compassion and grace. And these acts of charity, if you were to trace that, literally means that she was, may allude that she was giving alms, that she was not only a wealthy woman, but she was using her riches for good. And so while this is going on in Lydda with Aeneas, there's this wonderful woman of the Lord whose faith is evident in her good works, in her charity, And it was in those days that she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they were preparing her for burial. They laid her in the upper room. Some think they had heard that Peter's not far away since Lydda was near Joppa. Now you should see a map. Um, Here is Lydda. Boom. (laughs) Right there, you see Jerusalem. And notice on the map, we're going up, but it says he goes down because Jerusalem, they go on the topography, they're going down. And then you see from Lydda to Joppa, that coastal plain is called Sharon. Peter, I guess, was a lover of the West Coast. And that's good. And so Lydda was near Joppa. They they thought to themselves, Peter, we hear he's over in Lydda. Uh, The disciples hearing that Peter was there sent two men to him, urging him. And by the way, this is what Lydda looks like. Oh. Never mind. Carry on to the next verse. Please come to us without delay. This is a polite, urgent request. Please come to us. The request. It's urgent. One of our own is dead. And so they had prepared her for burial. They had put her in an upper room. Some think that they were hoping that Peter would come and, and he does. So Peter arose and went with them. And he arrived And they took him to the upper room and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. The grammar behind this idea of showing is that they were probably saying, look, look at the stuff she had made for us. They were wearing the clothes that she had made. This is a wealthy woman who was giving her wealth away for the glory of God. She was helping the widows and the poor. This is what you want your funeral to look like. People talking about all that you had done for the glory of God. There was sadness, weeping. That's what death is supposed to do. Death is to call us to reevaluate life. Death is here. It's, it's not a good thing. It is, it is of the fall, but it is something we must pass through. And so they were weeping. They were in an upper room, much like what Travis read when Elijah was with the widow's son. But Peter put them outside. No need to get too detailed here. This is just like Jesus had done it. 
fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. Peter probably remembered back to Mark 5. He didn't remember Mark 5. Mark probably wasn't written at the time, but the incident that's recorded for us in Mark 5, where Jesus had put the people out. And so he puts them outside. And to Aeneas, he immediately spoke and he said, Jesus Christ heals you here. He kneels down and he prays. There is no formula for how God works. Sometimes you speak directly here. It's implicit that he bowed his knee because he felt he was powerless to do anything. And he praised the prayers because he understood the power comes from God. And he makes a proclamation. Turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. Incidentally, if you were to look at Mark 541 on your own, there's only one letter difference between the power of his words and when Jesus said, Talitha, arise, little girl, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive just as it was in first King 17 in the old Testament, the power of God working for the glory of God. So you see it here, the power of God working for the glory of God. Explicitly, sometimes Jesus Christ heals you at other times. It's a prayer, God, and we can use our divine imaginations here. God, the world needs to see you work in Tabitha's life. God, I cannot do this. God, in the power of Jesus's name, would you raise this woman up so that your name would be made famous? And it happens. And the same result that happened in Lydda happens here in Joppa. And it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. Many were turning to the Lord in Lydda. Now they're believing in the Lord at Joppa. The power of God is going out from Jerusalem and it's starting to affect the world around. Peter, who had begun among the people and with the people, visiting the people, it says in 43, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Now, if you read your commentaries, you know what a tanner does. A tanner is one who works with leather. And so he has to kill unclean things. And so the apostle of the Jews stayed with an unclean Gentile. This would have made the Pharisees cringe, but it put a smile on Jesus's face. And it's a bridge to the next section, which we will touch on next week. The saga of this gospel going to the world continues. And so we're left after those two paragraphs, fairly straightforward with three questions. Why are these two paragraphs here? How does it relate to today? And how can we apply this to our life? Why are these two paragraphs here in the book of Acts? That's where when you're doing Bible study, by the way, you deal with where it sits in the book. Don't spring too quickly to go one place or another. Why are those two paragraphs there? Because the same power that was at work in Jerusalem is now going out to the Gentiles. And the same person through whom God had worked Peter is now being shown to go to the Gentiles. This is one religion. It's a unified religion. This isn't an offshoot. 
That's why it's there in the book of Acts. And then if you back out and you see, why is it here in the Bible? Because the same power that worked through Moses in the Exodus, the same power that worked through Elijah and Elisha in the prophets is the same power that works through Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament. The power of God is going out through his people to change the world for his glory. And so the second question is often the the big question. If, If the first question gives you the big picture, that this is a unified gospel going out to affect the world for the glory of God, the big question is what about miracles? How are we to interpret those in light of today? And a couple weeks ago or a couple months ago when we looked at Acts chapter two and Acts chapter four, I showed a video of Dr. John Piper and I still go with what he says Why are miracles here? First, let's define miracle. There's no one word that's used in the scripture uh, for miracles. There are several words. There's miracle, there's wonder, sign. Signs and wonders are combined. Why are they here? By the way, when we talk about miracle, we are not talking about providence. So let's start there. There is the providence of God, which God works through the normal course of life to bring about uh, his glory through the work of his people. And there are miracles, which are supernatural, extraordinary events. And so some would say uh, that births are miracles. They are in the normal process of life. It is in the providence of God. And just because God works through the normal processes of life doesn't make it any less wonderful. Catch that. It's no less wonderful. Psalm 19, one says the heavens declare the glory of God. And so when we walk out of here, we're some of the most privileged people on the planet to see these mountains around us. And we see the beauty of God around us. That is no less powerful, no less wonderful than a miracle being worked. You walk out and you say, this is magnificent. So don't knock providence. Don't knock the fact that God works. And I won't even call it coincidences, but that God works through normal means. We somehow want more than that. You got more than that at the cross. And you got more than that when your heart was changed. So what about miracles? Miracles, they're wonders. They're to bring the wonder of God to earth. They're signs. They point to something bigger than the miracle itself. Each time... They turned to the Lord. Each time they believe in the Lord. It wasn't that they held up Peter as some magnificent miracle worker. They turned to the Lord. The miracles authenticate the message. And they, as Dr. Piper said that one time, are clustered in the Bible around Moses, Elijah and Elisha, and Jesus and the apostles. And they're there for four reasons. Number one, at least after Jesus, it's to show you the example of Jesus. The same power that was working in our Savior is at work in the apostles. It's the example of Jesus and it's the power of Jesus. Peter raised Aeneas in the name of Jesus. It's the showing the renewing work of Christ on earth. Revelation says he is making all things new. Actually, it's First Peter. First Peter says he is making all things new, but it's near revelation in the Bible, just so you know. 
He's making all things new. A man's legs were not at work for eight years. And in the name of Jesus, he rises, makes his bed, and goes forward. And it's for the fame of Jesus, the glory of God, and the salvation of his son. They turned to the Lord. They believed in the Lord. They believed in the Lord. Both paragraphs, both miracles end with people turning to the Lord. And so I wrestled with this, as I always do when it comes to these issues, because people like to pigeonhole everybody. In... So here's what I'm going to say about miracles. Everyone, cessationists, continuationists, and charismatics, those are your main groups. The cessationists say there are no gifts today. They're not in work today. That, And the continuous, continuationists are a little bit more, hey, they could be at work today, but let's be careful. And the charismatics say everything is the same today as it was in Acts 2. I don't lean towards that side. I lean this way. But everybody, cessationists, continuationists, and charismatics all agree. Everybody agrees. Don't put people in categories. Everybody agrees that God is absolutely sovereign and God can do miracles anytime he wants. You were to put John MacArthur here, Wayne Grudem here, and C.J. Mahaney here. They're all friends. And they would all say God can do a miracle anytime he wants. The difference is, does God operate through miracles the same way today as he did then? The cessationist says no. Continuationist says maybe. The charismatic says yes. I want to emphasize the one miracle that absolutely happens today. It is the miracle of salvation. that if you're here today and you know the Lord Jesus Christ, it was not because you read your Bible and you figured it out. If you're here today and you know the Lord Jesus Christ and some shared, someone shared with you the good news of Jesus Christ, it is not because you were smarter than the other guy that he, he or she shared it with and you got it right. You and I are here today and we know the Lord Jesus Christ because God still does perform miracles and no heart will change without the supernatural, extraordinary work of God on the human heart. Period. End of story. So in preparing for this, I ran across a Christianity Today article where a guy named Andrew Wilson who has kids with regressive autism Asked him about miracles. This is a gentleman, so let's bring this home. Let's make this real personal. <clears throat> this is a gentleman who has kids who have regressive autism. Andrew, why doesn't God always heal? Great answer. He does eventually. It's a great answer. Does God always heal if we, have, if we are certain he will? Not necessarily. We've seen it happen in this congregation. We've prayed for healing upon the babies and God didn't heal them. And he's still good. And he's still God. Why, why not? Why doesn't he always fit, heal? And his answer is brilliant. The effects of Christ's victory have not been fully realized. 
realized? Absolutely. Fully realized? No. That is why you and I turn on the news and it's, it's not about, I, when was the last time you turned on the news and you heard good people of the Denver metro area, the, the church's attendance are up and the monies are flowing in and, and the blessing of the Lord is just going out. Have you, no, just raise your hand. Have you ever heard that? Never. So, but do we believe that? Do we believe that Christ's victory has partially been realized, but not fully? And so Christianity Today asked the question, if, if you with your kids in this situation understand that God heals, but not, not always in the timing we want, should we assume that sickness is a gift of God and go to the other end? Oh no, unless we're prepared to stop taking medicine or visiting doctors. Now, I didn't know I was going to have a enough stuffy nose this morning, but I need to take some medicine. I just sound like a frog, me and Kermit. So how can we see more healing? I love his answer. Pray, fast, believe, and persevere. And how should we pay? And this is great. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when it comes to miracles, my friend, pray for it. Hope in God. Pray for the miracle. Put your hope in God, not in a miracle. If it doesn't happen, God is still good. And so why are these two paragraphs here? We answered that question, the context. What do we do with miracles today? Pray for them. And understand this, when it comes to miracles, if you don't believe me, I would ask you to believe me. But if you don't believe me, go read your Bible from Genesis to Revelation just in one day. You no, know, I tell you what, 72 hours, just go pop in the ESV, take it two days off, three days, four days off from work. Sorry, I used to be an accountant. Yeah. Take four days off, hit play and listen to it. And you will see that miracles are clustered around Moses, Elijah and Elisha, and Jesus and the apostles. And every single time, every time, no doubt, it is to authenticate the message that is going forth. So if you, in your day, should see a miracle, you better start listening. Is the gospel being proclaimed? Because that's why miracles are in the Bible. Because the good news needs to go out. So if you see one, is the gospel being proclaimed? Because Satan can move about as an angel of the light. And he can, quote, perform miracles. But I want to bring this home to us. How do we apply this to our lives? If the first question deals with the big picture, the second question really deals with the big issue that everybody wants answered. I hope I've done a fair biblical job of that. The third one is really where it goes home. Let me just say my principles and then I'll apply it to our lives. Number one, God restores the disabled. The broken are made whole. And God resurrects the dead, the buried are made alive. 
that just as Tabitha was put in an upper room prepared for burial by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ working through his leader of the church, she is raised from the dead and in his name, one who was disabled is now restored. God is in the business of making all things new. And so if you're here today, or maybe you know somebody who's not here today and they have a broken life. They're paralyzed in an addiction. They can't move. They can't get out of it. Might you take to them the good news of Jesus Christ that can restore them? If you're here today and there's relationships that are on the verge of death, God can resurrect dead things. He is more powerful than you can imagine. There is not one thing on earth that the power of heaven cannot overcome. I'll repeat that. There's not one thing on earth that the power of heaven cannot overcome. God doesn't look down on earth and go, oh man, I am really, they call me almighty. That's pretty, pretty good at that. Part of the Red Sea. You know, we got Jonah out of the big fish. Some say it's a whale, but I'll hold that until they get to heaven. But man, this thing, sure wish Judd would preach on it. <laughs> That's not what he's doing. He's in absolute control. And he will work as he wants to work, when he wants to work, all for his glory. There's not one thing in your life, not one thing. Pornography addiction, not too big for God. Marriage failing, not too big for God. Trouble at work, not too big for God. Trouble with your kids, not too big for God. And then when it happens, you thought it was just a joke earlier when I said, kids, make your beds. But I come back to it. When, we, when that happens in our life, when God takes that addiction, when God takes that alcohol and he delivers us from it, we don't just sit there and go, oh, he, he's restored me. He has raised us with a responsibility. Psalm 51 13, it's not on the screen, but you can turn there if you want. This is the classic Psalm of David writing about his repentance after his atrocious actions as the king not only commits adultery, but commits murder and he lies about it along the way. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Verse three, I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me against you and you only have I sinned. Ultimately, his sin, though against Bathsheba, though against Uriah, though against Joab, was ultimately against God. And he says in verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And then, then catch verse 13, then I will 
teach transgressors your ways and sinners will, same language as that is used in Acts, return to you. And so my friends, should the Lord deliver you as you get on your knees and in his providence, pray for God to take what's paralyzing you away or what's dead to resurrect it to life. Should he do that? You have a responsibility to preach his name. And maybe you don't need a miracle. Maybe you just need God to work through his providence in the areas of repentance and obedience. Because those two paragraphs are there for a certain reason. God is in the business of restoring what is broken. And God, and you and I will see this, we will go to our grave in faith. And we'll be resurrected. Baptized with him in his death, raised to walk in newness of life. And one day, this, this, it's gone. We'll put on something new, exciting. Can you wait? You can't wait to see it, can you? Raised from the dead, resurrected from new life. Don't ever think, don't ever get to the point to say, God can't work. He can. He can. Father, it is an amazing privilege to call you Father. It is a joy to talk to you as I would talk my earthly father. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the miracle of salvation in my own life. I thank you for it in the lives of those in here who know you, your son. Might we walk out of here encouraged that we carry your message to the world and we can see it turned upside down and new things happen because you're at work. Thank you for not leaving us alone, but leaving us with the power of the Holy Spirit. Pray now as we go out in his name, in Jesus' name, by the Spirit's power, might you get all the glory. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.